0: All right, let me read you guys the 32nd Psalm and then we'll get into our sermon. This is a Psalm of David, a contemplation. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night, your hand was heavily upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Selah. I acknowledge my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave me the iniquity of my sin. Selah. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they shall not come near him. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Wonderful Lord, words. Now, I, I, I want to say something that in um, what he says at the beginning of that psalm, he says, blessed is the man... To whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. And Paul uses that exact same verse in the New Testament to show that we are saved by grace through faith, even in the Old Testament. If uh, the law says, if you do these things, you shall live by them, and nobody can meet the demands of the law, then that tells us that there must be something above the law to forgive us of our sins. And that is the mercy and grace of God, which is found. In the law, in the day of atonement, which is a day of mercy. It's a day of forgiveness. So blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity is something that shows us that we are saved by grace through faith, regardless of what the age is. There were works involved in the law, but ultimately the works could not please God. Only faith in what God has done for us is what saves us. So please uh, remember that. Remember that as you're struggling through life and you're trying to say, I'm a good guy. God doesn't grade on a bell curve. God grades you based on perfect righteousness or perfect unrighteousness. And those are the only two options. And the perfect righteousness is found in Jesus Christ. All right, now we uh, are in chapter 38. I'm not gonna read the whole chapter again like I did last week. All I'm gonna do is read the verses that we're gonna go through today. And then I will explain last week's verses. So as I said, if you're a little confused because you didn't see last week's sermon, I do apologize, but I'm gonna try to make it where you can at least grasp what's going on in here, But here we go with Genesis 38, starting at uh, verse 24. And it came to pass about three months after that Judah was told, saying, "Tomorrow your daughter-in-law has played the harlot. Furthermore, she is with child by harlotry. So Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. When she was brought out, she sent to her father-in-law, saying, by the man to whom these belong, I am with child. And she said, please determine who these are, the signet and cord and staff. So Judah acknowledged them and said, She has been more righteous than I, because I did not give her to Shella, my son, and he never knew her again. Now it came to pass at the time for giving birth that behold, twins were in her womb. And so it was when she was giving birth that the one put out his hand and the midwife took a scarlet thread and bound it on his uh, hand, saying, this one came out first. Then it happened as he drew back his hand that the brother came out unexpectedly. and she said, how did you break through? This breach be upon you. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand and his name was called Zara. <clears throat> Last week, we got most of the way through the chapter, but there are a few verses that we needed to look at. And uh, that's what I just read you, those verses. The uh, woman who seemed to be destined to live a life that was barren and without a husband turns out to be the one that will inevitably bear twins and who also finds God's favor by becoming an ancestor of Jesus Christ. Stories like this here should help us to remember that God is in control. Even when it seems like he's not, God is in control and he watches over all of life's details. He tenderly cares for the person who puts his trust and his hope in him. Today we'll see the explanation of why the details were given and what they are pointing to. These are wonderful insights which are given to us by the same God who placed the sun in the heavens, and who has filled the world with good food for his creatures. His attention is on the details, and it is in those details that his wisdom is most clearly seen. Our text verse for today comes from the fourth psalm. It says there, Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. Tamara was certainly in distress as she awaited a husband who would provide her a child. When she saw that she was being deprived of her rightful due by her father-in-law, Judah, she took action in order to see, to receive what she had been denied. God saw her plight and God rewarded her by giving her children and the high honor of becoming an ancestor of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's see today how it all turned out and what this beautiful story is meant to tell us. It's a part of God's word and so it is meant to speak to us, to our heart and to our soul. And so, may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have four thoughts for you today. The first is the righteousness of Tamar. This is verse 24. And it came to pass, after about, uh, about three months after, that Judah was told, saying, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has played the harlot. Furthermore, she is with child by harlotry. It's been a bit more than three months, and Tamar is obviously starting to show the uh, signs of her pregnancy, and the word got back to Judah. Tamar, your daughter, your daughter-in-law, has played the harlot. Both words, has played, and the word harlot are based on the word zona, not kedeshah. We saw last week that zona and kedesh are both translated in the English language as harlot, but they have different connotations. Those who report on her say that she is an adulterous harlot, not a temple prostitute. And then they add in that through her fornication, she's with child. Verse 24 continues. So Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. Judah here is demanding the full force of the customs of the people. Later, when we get to the Mosaic law, we're going to see that a person who was caught in adultery was to be stoned. Only the most wicked offenses of all were to include burning as a part of the punishment. Judah is demanding the penalty, though, for something which he was actually criminal in, whether he realized it or not at the time. It also needs to be noted that the most violent death possible is demanded for adultery, and yet there is no consideration at all when temple prostitution is involved. In fact, temple prostitution is considered socially acceptable. Verse 25, when she was brought out, she sent to her father-in-law, saying, By the man to whom these belong... I am with child, and she said, please determine who these are, the signet and cord and staff. This is one of the most ironic twists in the entire Bible, and it's a noteworthy Mm -hmm. of the greatest turning point of any movie or play. Tamar, she's on her way to burning. She sends the signet, the cord, and the staff of Judah back to his hand with the response by the man to whom these belong, I am with child. The previous possessor of the pledge who is Judah, is now shown the error of his ways. What should have been his and in his possession has rightfully, though temporarily, belonged to a Gentile who now bears the messianic hope in her womb. What was kept from her through the stubborn refusal to meet his responsibilities was granted to her by God who monitors his covenant, sees to his people, and cares for those who otherwise seem unsuitable to the task. Verse 26, so Judah acknowledged them and said, she has been more righteous than I because I did not give her to Shelah my son and he never knew her again. Yes, yes, it is true. In fact, these are the tokens of my act. The child is mine and all can see I am guilty and the offending party. His statement that she is more righteous than I is her vindication before her accusers. And the reason is given Judah knowingly withheld from her the promised child through his third son Shelah, and this is the reason why last week I said, and now we can rightly assume, that she understood her right to the messianic line. It was to come through Judah, and Shelah was not given to her, then her act with Judah would bring about the child which leads to Christ. And this is no different. I brought them up last week as well. It's no different than what the daughters of Lot did many years before when they seduced their father. Their action, although it was questionable on other levels, was with the intent of leading to the Messiah. The very words they spoke, we can infer that. In fact, that is exactly what happened is that they led to the Messiah, both of them. And Tamar is also such a woman of note. With the act behind them, the record states that Judah never knew her again. This means that Judah was never intimate with Tamar again in his life. Now, I want to tell you something. Last week, I was tying all that together. And I said that everything that happens in our life happens for a good reason. And that we can trust that God is in control of the details. And one of the people that was in this particular uh, congregation last week, he's not here, he went back to his home. He was visiting from out of town. He uh, Uh, called me two days ago and he said you know I really really struggled with that when you said that he said I know that my wife 100% believes that that everything happens is within God's control now I want to tell you that we can figure this out even without the Bible if God created and we know that he did then everything that he created must be known to him he's outside of time time is a part of creation and therefore everything in this bubble of time is known to God it has to be but that's a little bit of philosophy. The Bible also shows us that's true. And so he's struggling with this, and he's talking with his wife about it. His wife went back home before he did, and then he was on his way to Tampa and, uh, to get an air, a airplane to get back to his home. This is a couple days after his wife left. And on the way there, he's kind of rushing because he's got to get to the plane on time. He gets a text, and he looks at his text probably while driving so that wasn't very smart of him but uh he uh he looks at his text and says your plane has been delayed an hour and he said oh good well that gives me time so he goes into the airport first he drops off his car he goes to the airport and he goes in a direction that he never would have taken before normally he would go right up to the security and go up to the the gate and if he's going to change his clothes he'd do it at the gate but now he's got an hour so he goes a different direction And he's walking through the terminal and he's doing certain things. And he says, I did like all these different things that I never would have done before. And then I walked into a room, you know, a changing room that I otherwise never would have gone into in my life. He walks in there and here he made the news in Tampa. There's a guy laying there. He had fallen over. He had a seizure. He hit his head. There was blood pouring out of his head. His throat is stopped. He's not breathing. And if he had not walked in at that moment this person would have died. He would have been dead. There's no doubt about it. So he knew what to do. He's got some of his own physical problems, so he knows how to handle things like this. He cleared the guy's airway, got on the phone, called 911. They came out. After that, the police came and interviewed him so that they had a witness to what had happened. And they got on his plane and he got back home. And he was thinking to himself, you know, every single thing that I did had to come into play in order for this to happen, for that man to not die. And he said... After I realized that, I look back at my life. And like I said, he's got some physical problems that are life-threatening. And he carries with him all the time. And he has been in exactly the place where somebody was there when something happened. And this has happened several times throughout his life. And the circumstances were so unique that it could not have happened without something having directed it. And then the same thing is true with him being in other places where he could help other people at the same time. because he has these medical abilities, he's been able to be there at times that otherwise he never would have been in this area. The point that I'm making to you is that he understood after thinking about it. And I said, now here's what you need to do. Now that you have this in your mind, that everything is being directed by God, carry that with you. And I do this all day, every day. I don't care what it is. When I get stressed out, I say, Lord, this stress was here because you ordained it for me. And I got to tell you what, that takes off the pressure. When you face a trial that you know is something more than you want to face or when you're sick, I'm not feeling well this morning. And Lord, there is a reason why I'm not feeling well this morning. And if you carry that with you, I'm going to tell you, it helps you in your life hugely more than when everything is just random and it happens by chance. And so I told him, I said, one more thing that I think you should do because he's got some children that go from, you know, maybe uh, 12 up to 17 or so. I'm not exactly sure of their exact ages. But I said, you need to teach them that now is that life is not random. It's not just a bunch of chaos that's coming at you, that everything happens for a purpose. And if they can have that perspective from their youth, then when they get into these trials and these troubles, just like Tamar, everything will work out according to the plan of God and what he intends for us. And the main thing is we still have to live through the stress, don't get me wrong, but we know that the stress is there for a reason. Romans 8:28. what is it? Uh, God, uh, all things work out together for good for those who are the called according to his purposes. Either that's true or it's not. And if it is, then we can rely on that statement. So little little thought for you to take home with you today is that when your life is progressing, God is there with you and he knows before you go through it what you are going to go through and he is there with you in it. Our second thought today, twins in the womb. Verse 27, now it came to pass at the time for giving birth that, behold, twins were in her womb. This is a matter that's very similar to Judah's grandmother, who is Rebecca. Tamar is going to be the mother of twins. For those of you who missed that particular sermon, there's an interesting squiggle for your brain that I told the congregation at that time, and if you haven't heard this, it's kind of interesting. The word for twin in Hebrew is taomim, and that's where the name Thomas comes from. This is why in the New Testament, we have the verse from John's Gospel that says this, Then Thomas, who is called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, Thomas may or may not have been an actual twin, but he's named Thomas, and so he's also called the twin. Probably was a twin, though. But regardless of whether he was not, he is Thomas the twin. But the Greek word for twin is didymus. And this is where we get our word ditto from. And so Thomas is the twin, and the twin is the ditto. So now when you meet somebody named Thomas... You can explain all of these unnecessary details to him, all right? Thomas, I'd like to ask you, did you know that your name comes from the Hebrew word Taomim? And from the Greek word, we translate as ditto. Both of these actually mean that you are Thomas the twin. Anyway, Tamar won't just be a mother. She's going to be a mother of twins, verse 28. And so it was when she was giving birth that the one put out his hand and the midwife took a scarlet thread and bound it on his hand saying, this one came out first. In order to establish the right of the firstborn, who is the firstborn child for the giving of the birthright and to make sure that they would not get confused in the chaos of the coming birth of these twins, the midwife immediately put a scarlet thread on the hand of the child that came out of the womb first. No sooner is the thread on his hand proving that he's the firstborn than he would draws his hand back into the womb. The elder son has to wait to see the light with his eyes that his hand was already exposed to. Verse 29, then it happened as he drew back his hand that his brother came out unexpectedly and she said, how did you break through? This breach be upon you. Therefore, his name was called Perez. After the older retreats back into the womb, the younger breaks out to replace his older brother. Though he's not the firstborn technically, he takes the lead in birth. Because of this, his name is Perez. That means to break through or to break out. Little one, how did you break through? I tied the thread to the other child's hand. And now this breach be upon you. What has happened is hard to understand. Verse 30. Afterward, his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand. And his name was called Sarah. Only after the younger comes out does the elder leave the womb. The one marked by scarlet, proving he was first, now arrives. And because of this, his name is called Zerah, which means dawning or rising of light. Our third thought today, the details explained. There's always, there is always a reason for the minuteness of details in a story like this. The names, places, even the way things that happen or come about are used to show other things. If the main details of the surface story were all that God wanted us to see and to know, The contents of this entire chapter could be condensed into just a couple short sentences, no doubt about it. But the details are what's necessary for us to see the greater pictures of coming events in redemptive history. Now, I was having dinner with a, a very good friend of mine during the composition of this sermon. It was about five weeks ago, maybe six weeks ago. And she asked, why does God make it so difficult for us to see these things? And the answer is, and I told her this, there's something for people at every level in comprehending the Bible. That same week, I talked to five people who had a very limited knowledge of English. I talked to them about Jesus, and three of them were on the same day. They all, all five of them, understood the simple gospel enough to be saved, and I know that three of them accepted the Lord. The other two, I don't know. They may never understand the details of the Bible, but they understood the overall simple saving message. There are others who find moral applications in these stories, and that's what they do. They devote their time to looking at the Bible from a moral perspective. Other people find cultural and historical detail and value in each story. Just this week, I was on a a, uh, website. It's uh, the website that I use for Hebrew and for Greek because my knowledge of Hebrew and Greek is limited. I was there reading about the Hebrew and Greek, and this guy made a post there. He was a secular, secular historian. He thanked them for the site because he said, even though I'm secular, I don't believe in the Bible, I still find historical importance in what you've got here. And so what I did is I challenged him, why don't you set, bu- set aside your disbelief and come to the word without any bias at all? And if you do, you certainly will find more than just historical value in it. I'm 100% certain of that. God's word is completely inexhaustible in how it can be viewed, how it can be understood, and how it can be shared. Now, I'm a detail guy. You know that. If you're here more than one time, you know that I love the details and God has an approach for people like me. But my comprehension of Hebrew and Greek, as I said, it's very minimal. And so there are sites where the, the uh, you can go to understand the Hebrew and what it means and what it's pointing to. And there are also translations of the Bible for people like you and me that don't understand those original languages. And then you have other people that actually research the etymology of the words so that we know where they came from so what's the intent behind the word and i've got something called the haw theological word book of the old testament It's about this big and when i want to research the etymology of a word for a sermon so that you understand what is going on in that sermon i refer to that and then there is another set of uh uh, etymology books it's like 15 volume set and each book is like 150 dollars and i can't afford it so You get the discount version with the Haw Theological Word Book, just so you know that. There are people that research the Bible from every possible angle that you can imagine. Anthropological, the study of man. The Bible is the study of man. Archaeological, there are people, and this is the truth, there are people that have gone to Israel with the Bible in their hand and they said, we're going to dig for oil here because there's tar pits mentioned in Genesis, whatever, speaking around the, the area of Sodom. And they've gone down there and they found oil. There's another guy that has found oil and gas reserves up in the north of Israel because he went to the Bible where certain tribes are named and they are there. It's called Zion oil and gas and they're there to this day drilling oil and gas out of the land of Israel because of the archaeological value that is found or the geological value which is found in the Bible. Archaeological. People go and they say, you know, it says there was a city here that was destroyed. It was burned by fire. They go take a shovel, dig, and there's a city, Hatsor. Destroyed by fire, just the way the Bible describes. Man, we've got a, a book which gives us a thousand different levels to look at. It is a gift for all people at all of those levels. Today's story is just another example of this. And because this chapter stands alone, if you've looked at the context of chapter 37 and chapter 39, you know that chapter 38 has nothing to do with either of them. So because that's the case, it needs to be looked at in the context of those surrounding chapters. By doing this, we can see the reason why chapter 38 is located right where it is, and it is for a reason. I was telling Paul before the service today, I have never thought of why this chapter was here. It's just a continuous narrative, and you read it, and you go on. But after sitting down and thinking, why is this where it's at? It all makes sense. Chapter 37 detailed Joseph's dreams which pointed to the coming Messiah. Joseph himself pictures the Messiah. He's sent by his father to go out uh, into a foreign land to his brothers. And that's what Jesus did. He left a land to go to the people of Israel. He goes there, they throw him into a pit, a picture of the grave. He comes out of the pit, a picture of the resurrection, etc. All of these pictures of Joseph. And then after those things happen, what, what's the last thing that happens in chapter 37? He is sold off to the Gentiles and he ends up in Egypt. And that is all included in these events of Joseph's life in chapter 37. And then all of a sudden in chapter 39, it continues with Joseph's life in a Gentile area. He's still in the land of Egypt. And so this is being inserted right here in the middle of these two. And so we can rightly determine that God chose to place the story in this location to show something that occurs during Jesus' reign over the church age. And so from this starting point, we can rightly and properly evaluate the rest of the story in that context. The first verse of chapter 38 said Judah departed from his brothers. Now remember, Judah is where the word Jew comes from. So as we're evaluating this, keep thinking Jew and Gentile, the people of Israel and the church, and that'll help you through this. This is that starting point right there. Judah is representing the Jewish people and the focus is on them and their relationship with, with the upright Gentiles who were seeking the Messiah. The early church was, as if you go to the book of Acts, you'll see this, it was entirely composed of Jews. Eventually, Gentiles started coming into the church. Judah, his name means praise. He goes to visit his friend Hira, the Adjulamite, okay? Hira means nobility. Adjula means the justice of the people or the righteousness of the people. This immediately tells us that there is now a pursuit of the law the righteousness of the people, rather than a pursuit of Christ, which is the righteousness of God. Paul explains this in Romans 3 verses 21 and 22. He says this, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. Association with nobility, represented by Hira, and having justification before the people, represented by the Ajulamites, is of no account to God. Rather, he looks for those who seek him through his provision. While with Hira, Judah marries a Canaanite, a Gentile, and she's not given by name, the daughter of Shua. Shua means wealth. So this guy is married into a family of wealth, but he's left destitute of what is true riches. In this household, he has three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Judah names Ur. His name means watching or watcher. Judah's wife names Onan. His name means strong. And then she names Shelah, whose name means prosperity. But interestingly, nobody else has said where they were born. This guy, Prosperity, is said to be born while he is in Chizib, which is false or falsehood. Being sons of Judah, they should be faithful to the covenant. Once again, think of the Jews, think of the Gentiles here. The Jews are the sons of Judah are supposed to be faithful to the covenant, but it immediately becomes apparent that they are not. Er, meaning watchful, is not attentive. He doesn't watch out. In the New Testament, those of the faith are told to remain watchful. That's in the book of Colossians, but he fails at this. Judah gets a Gentile wife for him named Tamar. Tamar means palm tree. It's a symbol of uprightness. She is married into the people of God, but she isn't treated as if she were the people of God. All right? She, this Gentile, has been selected to be the bearer of the Messianic line, and she is upright, and she is faithful in this calling. However, instead of being watchful, as Ur's name implies, he is wicked. Remember I told you the reciprocal of his name is wickedness. So God is making a play on his name. His name Ur means watchful. Turn it around. Spell it backwards. It means wicked. The Lord who tends to his covenant kills this guy. The Lord is building a house of living stones. But Ur is inattentive to his duties. And he is well reflected in the 127th Psalm. It says there, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. They are not a good match. He is wicked, she is upright. He shuns the Lord, she seeks him. Ur failed to be a right mate for this upright woman, this Gentile woman. And because of Ur's death, Judah calls on his second son, Onan, to perpetuate the name of the one who should lead to the Messiah. Onan means strong. He fails to live up to his name. He's weak in his adherence to the honor and the integrity that he owes to the Lord, to the covenant and to the family. The second son completely fails in his duties. He openly shames the Messiah by destroying his seed on the ground. Onan, like Ur, failed to attend to this upright woman, this Gentile who was seeking the Messiah. Keep thinking of the New Testament. Keep thinking of the Gentiles who are coming into the church and the Jews who are already in the church. The wickedness pictures what is seen in the book of Acts and more so in the book of Galatians. Jewish people coming to the Gentiles and troubling them. They're seeking God. And instead, what they're doing, instead of leading them in the pursuit of Christ, they introduce legalism. And this is why the book of uh, Galatians is written, is to work and to speak against this. Instead of offering the Messiah, they offer works. Paul speaks of them this way in Galatians chapter four. He says, they zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you that you may be zealous for them. After the death of Onan, Judah tells this upright Gentile woman to remain a widow in your father's house until Shelah is grown. Shelah means prosperity, and his location of birth is specifically noted. It means falsehood. The name anticipates the story. The promise of Tamar having prosperity is false. Instead of understanding that the wounds were self-inflicted by his sons, He places the blame on this Gentile woman who is seeking the favor and the relationship of the people of God in anticipation of the coming Messiah. Each of these names has shown the relationship between the Gentiles and the Jews that are prefigured and are actually seen in the book of Acts in early church history. They mandate the law instead of accepting and explaining the grace of Christ. There is disobedience when there should be the proclamation of the Messiah eventually after some amount of time judah's wife dies one once this period of mourning for her is over he and hera head for a place called timna where the sheep shearers are timna means a part assigned basically a territory it is the place where the sheep are being tended to that would be the land of israel this is picturing israel sheep picture the common people in the bible judah is going to tend to the sheep the Jewish leaders are supposed to be attentive to their people. Tamar hears that Judah is going to Timnah, and she seizes on the opportunity again to be included among the people of God and be the bearer of the Messiah. In order for her to succeed, what does she do? She takes off her widow's garments, and she wraps herself in clothing that would disguise her, and then she puts a veil over her face. The clothing and the veil are what disguise this lady. Judah picturing the Jews is now blinded to the truth. Her clothing disguises her widowhood just as the Gentiles' nature disguises their called status as God's people. And this is seen very clearly if you go to the book of uh, Acts chapter 10. All right, the Gentiles receive the Holy Spirit and the Jewish people don't believe it. They're like, you know, how can that be? And they have this big discussion about it. The veil is the law. That's what the veil is picturing. And it hides the Jewish eyes from the work of the Spirit apart from the law. And this is exactly explained by Paul when he wrote to the Corinthians. Listen to what Paul says. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech, unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. But their minds were blinded For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the spirit of the Lord. The law could never bring about the righteousness pictured by Tamar's faith. Remember at the beginning of this, when I read that Psalm and I said, even in the law itself, David understood that it is by grace you're saved. The law is not a means to an end. It's a means to point us to Jesus Christ. that's why I highlighted that in that particular Psalm. The Jews' minds are blinded by this veil. It's hiding the message and the truth of the message of Jesus Christ. At this point, I should remind you that this is a picture, and I say this from time to time. Pictures are never one-to-one comparisons. If they were, God would just tell us what he's going to do. He wants us to search this out, but he's putting it in pictures for us so that we can search it out and we can understand when it does happen. Now, the reason why I say it's not a one-for-one comparison is because the sex and the deception are not what is being focused on here. Rather, the overall picture which is being presented He's using a real story with real human beings, including wickedness and intrigue, to show us something else. There are enough specific details here for us to get this overall message. Tamar sits at this place. It's called Befetta Enaim, the gateway of eyes. And she's wearing clothing, which disguises who she is. All right? Where there should be vision for Judah, the gateway of eyes, instead there's only a lack of vision. All he sees is a prostitute. And the word zona is used, a prostitute who sells for money. But instead, she's an upright person who's pursuing the Messiah. Keep thinking of the Jews and the Gentiles in the early church. And why has she done this? Because she was denied her right. Jesus would explain it this way, and he did explain this this way in Matthew 23. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. This is the leaders of Israel. For you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. They won't enter the kingdom, but they will enter a harlot. This is picturing the spiritual prostitution, which is mentioned all the way through the Old Testament. I'll read you one from Jeremiah chapter three. It says, then I saw that for all the causes for which backsliding Israel had committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a certificate of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah, did not fear, but went and played the harlot also. The word harlot, Zona, all right? And so thinking that Tamar is a harlot, he propositions her. She asks, what price is he willing, is, yeah, what price is she willing for him to enter into her? And Judah's answer is, I'll give you a young goat. In Hebrew, the term is izim. This is an animal which is used for an offering to the Lord. And we see this exact same term Gediazim used at the announcement of the birth the coming birth of Samson the angel of the Lord shows up at Samson's parents and he says you're going to have a child and they're like how do we know that's going to happen and he explains the details of his life and all this and it says the father Manoah did this so Manoah took the young goat Gediazim with the grain offering and offered it upon the rock to the Lord so in agreement to the deal here Tamar then asks for a pledge until the payment, the Gedi azim, is received. All right? The word for pledge here is so important to understanding what's going on. It's the word eravon. It's a Hebrew word. It is an earnest deposit. When the goat is received, then that earnest deposit can be returned. The Hebrew word eravon, and I got to tell you what, this is a very obscure word. It's used only three times in the Old Testament, and all three are in this chapter. It is adopted by the traitors of Greece and Rome. And so it is taken into their language. And so when Paul writes the New Testament, guess what he does? He writes using this exact same Hebrew word in the Greek, eravon. He is the apostle to the Gentiles and he is the only one that uses this word and uses it three times, just as the Old Testament does. And he equates it to our promised redemption, the sealing of the Holy Spirit. Identical words between Hebrew and Greek are most unusual in the Bible, and yet this word was carried over certainly so that we wouldn't miss the significance of what we're being shown here. Here we, here are all three examples. I want to read you all three from the New Testament where you can see where Paul writes about this word Erebon. Now he, Jesus, who est- or God, who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God, who also has sealed and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a a guarantee. Then he says in 2 Corinthians 5, now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. And then one more time, which I cite almost every sermon, I bring these verses up. In him, Jesus, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory each time this word is used it is used by paul the apostle to the gentiles speaking of the holy spirit the holy spirit is the security given in hand for the fulfillment of every promise which relates to our salvation and to our hope and all who hold the pledge and who can so produce it will be saved from condemnation and they will be granted eternal life. This is what it all comes down to right here. Are you in Christ, and will you receive eternal life? It all comes down to this right here. This is the surety that we have because of our pledge, the Holy Spirit. And this is what Judah's pledge to Tamar is representing. This pledge is his signet, his cord, and his staff. And it represents Judah's identity, his authority, his tribe, and his rule. And this is what Tamar asks for, and what is granted by him. Keep thinking, Jew and Gentile, the Jews have now given this over to the Gentiles. And this is what passed from the Jews to the Gentiles during this dispensation that we call the church age. By being the bearer of the Messiah, as Tamar was, and as we are, we share in his identity and in his authority. Tamar looked for personal justification by obtaining proof of her righteousness. Likewise, the Christian is granted justification and the proof is the spirit we are righteous not because of any intrinsic righteousness of our own but because of the giving of the spirit based on the work of jesus christ now remember the context from the previous chapter joseph who is the one who is now in all these stories picturing the messiah has been sold off to the gentiles this insert story is here to confirm that that point and to show us the fulfillment of noah's prophecy which came a 1,000 years before this story that we're looking at right now. And I want to read you that, and I want to explain it to you. Here's what Noah says over his sons. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. He's blessing his three sons. And may Canaan be a servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. Shem is the one from whom the Jews come, and they are the bearer of the spiritual legacy based on that prophecy of Noah. But for a time, the legacy would be transferred to the Gentiles. That's why it says, may Japheth dwell in the tents of Shem. He is the one that is for a time bearing the spiritual legacy. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you can go back to the Genesis uh, sermons, the early ones with Noah, and especially Genesis chapter 10. It's the table of nations, and it details all of this. You know, you kind of have to follow these things or you get a little bit confused. But those sermons will detail this very clearly. The pledge is given, and Tamar, who pictures the Gentiles, the righteous Gentiles who have accepted Jesus Christ, she has ascended to become the bearer of the Messiah for a period of time. She's bearing the Messiah in her womb. We are bearing the Messiah as we proclaim him throughout the world. I tell you what, the Jews will do this again someday, but it is the time of the church age. It's the time of the Gentiles. Once the pledge was Tamar's, she set aside her garments and her veil and she went back to the garments of her widowhood. After Tamar returned home, Judah took the goat and he sent it by the hand of his friend. But for the very first time in this chapter, his name isn't given. Only the people that he belongs to, Ajulam. His name, Hira, which means nobility, isn't mentioned. In So we can assume that nobility is not in any way associated with what has happened in either picture or what is being pictured. There's only the thought of self-justification, not the nobility and the honor of the Lord. And during his search for the woman, this guy Hira, who's looking for, uses again the term Kedeshah, not the term Zona. Instead of a harlot for wages, which is what uh, Judah calls her, he thinks he's looking for a religious prostitute there is written all over this account a rejection of the Lord and a following after one's own devices. Every single word has been selected to show us the truth of this account. When the message is returned that the woman can't be found, instead of acknowledging the wrongdoing and accepting the shame for what he did, only a thought of saving face is noted. Keep thinking, the Jews and the Gentiles in the world today, all right? In the same way, Israel to this day has failed to acknowledge their transgression by rejecting the Lord. This is stated explicitly 600 years before the coming of Jesus. Ezekiel gives a prophecy, which is speaking about this day in history, right now with Israel back in the land. Here's what he said. But I, this is the Lord speaking, I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations wherever they went. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. Israel's back in the land, but it's not because of their righteousness. It's because of his name, which has been born by the Gentiles during this period. If you can see how this is being woven together. The next thing we see is something reminiscent of the account in John chapter eight. If you know the story where they bring a a woman who's caught in adultery before Jesus and they say, what do you say? Should we stone her? And they're trying to trap him. If he says, yes, stone her, then the Roman authorities will call him an usurper of Rome and they'll be done with him. If he says, no, don't stone her, then he's violating the law of Moses, which says to stone her. And so he can't be the Messiah that everybody is claiming. So they've got him in this this hypocritical situation because they didn't even bring the guy. They just brought the girl. Both of them should have been stoned. And this is the same type of thing that's here. The hypocrisy is palpable. When Tamara's found with child, blood is demanded. And in the accusation, once again, the term Zona is used. She was accused of being an adulterous harlot instead of a religious harlot. In his hypocritical indignation, he demands for her to be burned. And the crime and the penalty, I tell you, will be meted out someday. It's right there in the pages of the Bible, but it will be for true spiritual harlotry. Remember, she has the pledge, okay, and she's not going to be burned. This will be executed on a global scale on both Jew and Gentile alike, and the Lord has made his offering. He's given us himself. He shed his blood. But for those who do not accept it and don't receive the pledge, Revelation 18 tells us what is coming now listen to these words and think of tomorrow and where she's being taken to right now and what it says here therefore this is speaking of babylon the great the mother of harlots at the end of the age therefore her plagues will come in one day death and mourning and famine she will be utterly burned with fire for strong is the lord god who judges her you see what's going on there what is supposed to be meted out on this person proves that it can't be because she holds the pledge she is called on jesus as lord Unlike Babylon, there will be vindication for those who trust in the Lord God and the evidence will be that pledge that we present on that day. The great day is ahead and the token will be presented by all of God's people just as righteous Tamar presented the proof of her righteousness to Judah. Remember this, Tamar never received the goat. Her vindication comes from what she held in her hand, from the righteousness of God in Christ not from the offering of goats and rams this is perfectly explained in the book of hebrews if everyone do a study on the book of hebrews you'll understand what i'm talking about and yes judah did acknowledge it judah picturing the jews don't forget that and that's future to us now but there is a day when all of israel will be saved both testaments the old testament and the new both show us that this is true paul writes about it in the book of romans The God of Israel, who for a season was proclaimed by the Gentiles, just as she bore the Messiah for a season, will be called again, will be called on again by the people of Israel, the Jews. And although we're not there yet, this is exactly why Judah is the one who will give the speech before Joseph. When they're on trial, the brothers come and bow before their brother down in Egypt. They don't know that it's their brother Joseph. Judah is the one who is going to make a plea On behalf of his brother uh, Benjamin. That's recorded in Genesis 44. Benjamin means the son of the right hand, right hand. And he is a picture of the son of God, Jesus. And he is going to be petitioned for by Judah in the presence of Joseph, who is the ruler of Egypt, who also pictures Jesus. The symmetry of these Genesis stories and what they picture in later coming redemptive history are so beautifully woven together that only God and I mean this sincerely, only God could have composed these words. It's not possible to come to all of these patterns throughout the Bible and to come to any other conclusion. The reason for all of these things is explained by Paul in Romans chapter nine. Why did the banner get passed from the Jews to the Gentiles? Why was Tamar justified when Judah wasn't? The answer is found in these words from Paul. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by works of the law. For they stumbled at the stumbling stone. What the Jews sought, they didn't attain. And what the Gentiles didn't pursue, they did attain. But this is so that God can have mercy on all of us, on Jew and on Gentile alike. And because of this, the words of Hosea, which Paul quotes next in the book of Romans, ring all the more true. Here's what he says. I will call them my people who are not my people. Think of the Gentiles. The Jews are in, the Gentiles are out. Judah is in and tomorrow is out. Think of it. I will call them my people who are not my people and her beloved who is not my beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said of them, you are not my people. There they shall be called the sons of the living God. And then for a season... The Gentiles are God's people and the Jews are out. So now he can say the exact same words to the Jews that he said to the Gentiles. He has mercy on all. Approximately 40 men, only 40, interspersed through several countries of the Middle East, penned a book which is so perfectly structured to match itself internally on numerous levels and in the chronology of history itself. And it took 1,600 years to compile this book only God could have done it through divine inspiration. There is no other explanation for what we're looking at here. Our fourth and final short thought today, divine election. Okay, we're at the end of the pictures of Judah and Tamar, and then all of a sudden, that's the pictures of the Jews and the Gentile. But then we come to another picture. It's a picture of Adam and Christ, and one which is repeated time and time and time again in the pages of the Bible. The second replacing the first and you wonder why this keeps happening in the bible the second replacing the first the second replacing the first is because god wants us to pay attention to what he's doing if he did it just one time or twice we could say that's curious but when it happens again and again he's trying to show us something we've already seen it when abel replaced cain shem was placed above japheth abraham was placed above his older brother haran isaac was placed above ishmael jacob was replaced above uh, Esau. And then we saw Leah placed above her sister, Rachel. And these patterns are going to continue again and again, all the way through the Bible, to show us which point things which point to the second Adam, replacing the first Adam. In this chapter, it is Perez, the younger, being placed above Zerah, the older. Paul explains it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want to read this to you. So also is the resurrection of the dead, The body is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown in natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first Adam became a living being. The last Adam, speaking of Christ, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, But the natural and afterward the spiritual the first man was of the earth made of dust The second man is the Lord of heaven as was the man of dust So also are those who are made of dust and as is the heavenly man So also are those who are heavenly and as we bore speaking of Adam the image of the man of the dust We shall also bear the image of the heavenly man The unusual birth order was ordained by God to show us this pattern The first Adam will be replaced by the second, Christ. And so it is with these two. Not only is the younger ahead of his older brother in birth, but he will be the one that leads to the Messiah. In Matthew chapter 1, it is Perez, not Zerah, who is in Jesus' genealogy. And the other details, I mean, how interesting they are. Zerah's name means dawning, thus picturing Adam who was created at the dawning of humanity. His hand was ornamented with a scarlet thread. The scarlet pictures the sin of Adam. That's what it's there for. It's the scarlet thread that runs all the way through the Bible. No sooner did Adam break out of the womb of creation than he sinned against God, thus dying. Perez, his name means to break through. He pictures Christ, who is the one who broke through the bonds of death, which came from Adam's sin. Just as the second Perez broke out from the womb, So did the second Adam, our Lord Jesus, first break out of the tomb. His work was prophesied by Micah about 600 years before the coming of Christ. Micah said these words and he uses the exact same Hebrew word as the name of this guy here, Perez. This is Micah chapter two. The one who breaks open, ha will come up before them. They will break out, paretsu, pass through the gate and go out by it their king will pass before them with the Lord at their head. Because of the breaker, who is Jesus, Zara's scarlet, his sin, can be traded for something else. Isaiah tells us what that is in Isaiah chapter 1. Come now, he says, and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. You go right back up. It says that he, the Messiah, is the one who will break through and that we will break out behind him. It's all pictured in this this story of two children coming out of the womb in an odd way. Finally today, as a wonderful picture of what Christ did for us, we need to see where the dye, the dye for the scarlet thread came from in ancient times. It came from a worm, which in Latin we call cocus illicis. In Hebrew, it is called tola. Henry Morris wrote this commentary on the tola, this this worm. Here's what he says. When the female of the scarlet worm species was ready to give birth to her young, she would attach her body to the trunk of a tree, fixing herself so firmly and permanently that she would never leave again. The eggs deposited beneath her body were thus protected until the larvae were hatched and able to enter their own life cycle. As the mother died... The crimson fluid stained her body and the surrounding wood. From the dead bodies of such female scarlet worms, the commercial scarlet dyes of antiquity were extracted. What a picture, he says, this gives us of Christ, dying on the tree, shedding his precious blood that he might bring many sons to glory. He died for us that we might live through him. Now you have to ask yourself, why would Henry Morris come to this conclusion? How would he make that connection? The reason is that this worm, the tola, is mentioned in the 22nd Psalm, which is a messianic psalm. It's a psalm about Jesus' cross. Here's what it says there. But I am a worm, a tola, and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. All these words were spoken at Jesus' cross as recorded in the Gospels. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breasts. I was cast upon you from birth, from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. You see the symbolism, the worm dying on that wood and staining the wood, red, and Christ dying on the cross, calling himself a worm in his blood, staining the cross of Calvary, Calvary red. The Bible says that Jesus knew no sin, but he became sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The red stain of the worm, which made that scarlet thread in which pictures our sin was transferred to Jesus' cross so that our sin could be taken away. Our scarlet for his pure, perfect, white righteousness. It's an amazing trade. And it's all seen in this short account, just eight verses of two children fighting to come out of the womb first. Now, if you've never been given the simple message of Jesus, his work, which frees us from our sin, I wanna take just one more minute and I wanna explain it to you very simply. I get into details during these sermons because I'm never gonna go through these passages again. This is the one time I'll ever preach on this passage and I wanna make sure I get every detail out of it for people that wanna know these things. But there is a simple message. The simple message is that God loves us enough to send his son to take away all of the bad things that we've done in our life. All of the times that we've been disobedient, whether it's to our parents, whether it's to the laws that we live under, or whether it's to him personally by stealing or lying or whatever. We've all committed sin and we have broken God's law and we are separated from God because of that. The condemnation stands And there's nothing that we can do. That's what this whole story is about, is showing us that works of the law can never right us with God. It cannot happen. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. And it can only come in one way, by faith in what God has done for us. God sent Jesus Christ to live that life that you and I cannot live. And Jesus Christ lived perfectly. And then he took that beautiful body that God prepared for him. And he said, I'm gonna give it up in exchange for your sin. And so he was nailed to that cross and yeah, he shed blood and it stained that wood for you and for me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It is available. It is a guarantee and it can never be taken away. That's the significance of the ervon, the pledge that God has given us. Let every man be a liar, but let God be true. We can be saved through the blood of Jesus Christ. Call on him, all right? Please do it if you've never done it before. Got a closing verse from the book of Galatians. Tie it in with what we're talking about. This is Paul. He's a Jew. And he's writing to the Gentiles. He said, we who are Jews by nature, and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Wonderful. Even Paul understood it. And he's just building on what was said in the Old Testament by David and by all the other people. It's all faith. It's all grace. It's all Jesus. Next week is Genesis 39, 1 through 10. Joseph, we're going back into the life of Joseph. He's going to be down in Egypt and he's going to take over as the overseer of Potiphar's house. And so it's called the overseer of the house. That'll be our 97th Genesis sermon. Now I'll tell you, I got a little short poem this week, only uh eight verses, but I'll tell you this the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. I believe that fully, completely, one hundred percent. You are exactly where the Lord wants you, and he has a good plan and a purpose for you. So call on him. And let him do marvelous things for you and through you. Alright? This is called Jesus the one who breaks through. And it came to pass about three months after that Judah was told a story most wild. Tomorrow your daughter in law has played the harlot. Furthermore, by harlotry she is with child. So Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned, after the distasteful news of which he had learned. When she was brought out, though reviled, she sent to her father in law, saying, By the man to whom these belong I am with child the implements of which I am displaying. And she said, please determine whose are these, the signet and cord and staff. Tell me, please. So Judah acknowledged them and said, she has been more righteous than I because I did not give her to Shella, my son, instead. And he never knew her again as time passed by. Now it came to pass at the time for giving birth that behold, twins were in her womb, two more children to walk the earth. And so it was when she was giving birth that the one put out his hand before the other and the midwife took a scarlet thread to identify who was the firstborn brother. And she bound it on his hand saying, this one came out first, the child for which you were praying. Then it happened as he drew back his hand that his brother came out unexpectedly. How did you break through in a manner so grand? This breach be upon you, you little cutie. Therefore, his name was called Perez. This is his name, just as the Bible says. Afterward, his brother came out who had a scarlet thread on his hand and his name was called Zerah, no doubt. Wonderful details of a story so grand. These two children picture Adam and Jesus and a part of the plan which God has determined for us. Jesus is the one who breaks open, he so great. He will come up before them leading the way. They will break out and pass through the gate and go out by it in a most glorious display. Their king will pass before them with the Lord at their head, The same king was crucified, whose precious blood was shed. And now he stands victorious over the gates of death. Pardon from sin is found in him. And to us, eternal life he bestoweth. Hallelujah and amen. Glorious God, glorious God. I thank you for this story. It it is filled with details and some of them are hard for us to grasp, especially when we have so many names and so many places and so many details. But the overall message is right there, that you love us enough to give us the pledge, the promise of the Messiah, his rule, his authority, it all belongs to us as we wait on his return. We have the permission to proclaim his name to the nations and to tell people about the goodness of God, which is found in Jesus Christ. And Lord, I know that there are people in this congregation, even this small little group, that have troubles on their hearts, they have trials in their lives, they have difficulties. But you already know them and you already have them sorted out. And so help them to understand that these trials and these troubles that they're facing do fit into your plan. And just as Tamar, who received her child and became an ancestor of our glorious Lord, so we too have a good plan and a purpose in your overall workings in the world. Help us to glorify you with our lives and to be attentive to our responsibilities to you. And when we're weak, strengthen us. Help our knees to be strong and our hands to be established in the work that we do each day. We thank you. We love you. We praise you. All glory to you because of the work that you did through your son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Amen.